So today we start, we're continuing our series called The Book of Signs. We started it last week and uh, we're encountering the second sign that John wrote about. So it's in John chapter 4, starting at verse 46. As he travelled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he turned the water into wine. There was a government official nearby in Copernicum, whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Copernicum and heal his son, who was about to die. Jesus asked, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Jesus told him, Go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus had said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them, when was the boy began to get better? And they replied, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realised that that was the very time that Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. You know, in telling the story of Jesus, John has an agenda. And his agenda is that we might believe in Jesus. And that's why he writes. John's sole intention is to instill, to initiate faith in, of, in Jesus and all of us. Anyone who would read his gospel. And Jesus, as I shared last week, uh, sorry, John structures his story, his gospel storyline around seven signs. What are actually seven miracles, but John calls them signs. And, and, and this is very different to Matthew and Mark and Luke, what they were doing. I mean, their, their, their gospels are just full with, with miracles. In fact, it's like Mark just backed the truck up and just dumped miracles for Afro all over the place. And, um, you know, he just throws us, again, miracle after miracle what Jesus did. And you're almost overwhelmed by the wonder worker who is Christ. So John, when he comes to write his gospel, which is the last gospel, he says, well, listen, that's all been done. So my agenda is going to be a little bit different. What I want to do is I, I, I don't want to just impress people that Jesus can do miraculous works. I'm going to use miracles, and I want to use them as signs. Because what I want to do is I want them to point people to how to believe in Jesus. You see, John isn't so much interested in that you believe that Jesus can do miracles. John wants you to believe in Jesus. And there's a difference between believing in what Jesus can do and believing in who Jesus is. And so we have seven signs. Those are all that John wrote about in his whole gospel. Last week we started our journey through the signs and we looked at the first. The wedding where Jesus turns the water to wine. And each of these signs is more than a story. They're a declaration of who Jesus is and the kingdom of God that is now being released in the world and how to walk in that kingdom. And with all these signs, John will present to us, have one purpose, that it will direct our faith towards Jesus. And that's his whole soul purpose. And it's also interesting as we go through, and I'll, I'll talk about this a bit more in each, each of the Gospels, but in, uh, sorry, in each of the signs, but often he relates these signs to something from the Old Testament. He pulls, he pulls on the Old Testament understanding of who God is, and he pulls those things into the New Testament and says, look, here's Jesus. He is that person. So remember like last week we saw how he turned, Jesus turned water into wine. And we talked about how he, he overflowed the vats. He took the religious water and he made it wine for the party. 
because we'd moved from temple and now we live in table of relationship, not religious regulations. And that tied back to the whole idea of the Old Testament that the, the wine was indicative of God's blessing. And so we see Jesus giving us bountiful, unlimited supplies of wine. And so we see this always going on. And so today we're looking at the second sign. And, and it happened only, only a few weeks apart, maybe a month, maybe two. And they both happened in Cana of Galilee. But this miracle is a much more serious miracle than the first. This is about a very sick child that's about to die who gets healed. And for me, what's so intriguing about this miracle is that the boy is in Copernicum, but Jesus is in Cana. And the boy is in Copernicum. That's 26 kilometers away from Cana. And he gets healed by simply Jesus speaking a word in Cana. It's healing at a distance. And this little boy is going to be healed. You see, because it's not merely an account of a miracle, but John uses it as a sign to direct our faith. Because John says, if you believe in Jesus, in his identity, in his name, in the right way, it will give you life. And he says, I want you to have life. Now, centuries before Jesus, maybe a thousand years, an anonymous psalmist was meditating on the history of Israel. And he writes a psalm, Psalm 107. And in it, Psalm 107, he says this. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Psalm 107, verse 20. So the psalmist there is meditating on a particular time during the wilderness wandering when the great plague had come upon the Israelites. And the psalmist says that God spoke a word from heaven to Israel. As they wandered in the wilderness, he brought about a healing. He brought about a healing to all those who were ailing and sick. And so there's a picture of God's word, of God's word coming forth as a healing agent. He sent his word and he healed them. And so I want you to think about the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and lived among us. In the beginning was the Word. Now that word there is a Greek word called logos. And, and so we could say in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God. And the logos was God. And the logos became flesh and lived among them. And that word logos here can be translated um, so much more than just word. I mean, that's how we translate it. But it's actually bigger than that. It's a more robust word. It could also be understood as wisdom. So we could say in the beginning was the wisdom, and the wisdom was with God, and the wisdom was God, and the wisdom became flesh and dwelt among us. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a, a, a chapter in the book of Proverbs that I love. It's just this wonderful chapter of Proverbs chapter 8. And in it, we see wisdom commending itself. Wisdom is actually speaking. And towards the end of the chapter, wisdom says this, I was with the Lord before there was anything. I was daily his delight, and I was with him for the creation of all things. I worked with God as a son with his father in the creation of all things. Sounds familiar, huh? Just like what John's saying, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God. In the beginning, with God, and all things were made by him. And apart from him, nothing was made. So this, this idea of logos can be also translated as wisdom. And we have this idea 
And we have the idea of logic, that the logic of God came. And, you know, it's not any logic. It's not human logic. It's it's not that logic that we know. It's divine logic. And, you know, as you study the Scriptures, one of the themes that we recognize is that there's a difference between human logic and divine logic. Later in James, in his letter, James 3.15, he says that human uh, wisdom or logic will always move towards the demonic, towards scapegoating, blame, self-preservation, economic self-interest. But the divine logic of God will always move towards love. Love. In the beginning was the logos, the logic, the wisdom of God, and he was with God and he was God and he became human flesh. You see, the theme of the whole of the Bible, of the Gospel of John, that John wants us to get, and it's so critical and and it's so important to us. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God has to say. That's not just a pithy saying, that's the reality. Everything, everything of God is found in Jesus. Jesus is a word that God speaks into his own creation that we at long last might know what God is really like. You know, I've said it before. You know, you say, well, what's God? When people say, well, who's God? God is an undefinable term because God to you means one thing, the God of the Bible. But you see, when you speak to a, to a Hindu or a Buddhist or someone, um, they'll talk about God happily. But their God, where they're coming from, is a totally different God. And so you're going to have this conversation and you're going to be talking about two totally different things and not connecting. But when we bring the name Jesus in, we have a clearly defined reality that Jesus is the uh, full representation of God. Jesus is the Word of God translated into human flesh so we can understand God. So he's no longer abstract. He doesn't remain theoretical or ethereal. He's real. And in the beginning, the Word spoke creation into existence because the Word is with God. The Word is the Son of God. The Word is the second person of the Trinity. But this place blows me away. In the incarnation... The word that spoke creation into existence is now spoken into creation himself. In the beginning, the word spoke creation into existence. The word created everything. But in the incarnation, Christmas, Bethlehem, virgin birth, Jesus in a manger, the word, the logos, the wisdom, the logic of God is spoken into creation. I mean, that is just mind-boggling. There is no, no other story like it in all of creation. I mean, it would be like a novelist writing his novels and creating his characters and then writing himself into the novel. Well, I, I, I have a, one of my favourite novelists is a guy called Robin Cook. Robin Cook writes medical thrillers. They're about, I think, 12, 13 in the series now. New one out in November, which is good news. But in, but in the last um, probably five or six of them, the main person's been Jack Stapleton and his wife, Laurie Montgomery. They're both medical examiners. And uh, then there's a whole lot of characters around them that all feature in this novel. And, and as you read this novel, you come to know each of, the, each of the characters, what they like, what they dislike, their sports, all this sort of thing. And, and so if you think about it, they're, they're, in a sense, they're living there in the book. But, and they know nothing of Robin Cook, their creator. And the only way they could do it is in some crazy way. Robin Cook wrote himself into the story. (laughs) Sort of like a, hello, I'm your creator. I want to get an O to me. And so I've written myself into the story. 
Uh, it's not a perfect analogy. I understand that there are no perfect analogies. But something like that happened in creation, in the incarnation. God so wanted us to know him, he realized the only way he could do it was by becoming one of us. God says, I'm not going to stay distant from my creation. I am going to write myself into the story though, so that people will know who I am. Jesus is what God has to say. And as we look at Jesus, we see the divine logic of God translated into a human being so that we can understand what he is like. And this is huge. This is the center of Christianity. God, creator and sustainer. The un unknowable steps into creation so we will have no doubt about what God is like. John, you know, he's written his Gospels, but he also wrote three letters. And the first one, 1 John, has the five chapters, and he opens it like this. We declare to you what was from the beginning. <laughs> Excuse me. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked and touched. Looked and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Jesus said, John is saying, look, I have seen him. I have touched him. I have heard him. The Word, the Logos, He became a human being for us. And I'm going to testify. I'm going to tell you what Jesus was like so you will know what God is like. And so God writes Himself into the story so that we can know what He is like. See, Jesus is the full, complete, final, and eternal self-disclosure of God. If you want to know what God is like, where do you look? You look at Jesus. Into our world of death and, and, and all those things going on, God, like an incredible blazing light of glory, came as a baby to become a man. And sometimes we lose that. We, we uh, think and we focus on the death and the resurrection, which is important. But we lose the fact that Jesus became a man. He lived 33 years that we would know the fullness of God and what he was like. As I said, all the signs, all the miracles John gives us go back to the Old Testament. And remember Psalm 107, he sent his word so they would heal him. And here's John saying, this is the fulfillment of that. Here is the word. And then he tells, gives us a miracle that he heals him. John gives us these signs to see how this wall works. And this is the miracle here of the healing. Jesus is returning from a tour from Samaria and Judea. He's gone all the way up to Jerusalem and he's worked a miracle in Cana of Galilee, turning the water and the wine. And then he went on a tour through Jerusalem, went back down through Samaria, met the woman at the well, and now he's back in Galilee. But instead of returning to his home base in Copernicum, he, he, he's gone back to Cana, which is high up in the mountains. It's quite close to Nazareth, about seven kilometres, and he spends his time here in Cana. And while all this is going on, down at Copernicum, which is a large city in those days, right on the seashore is a royal official. Which we, what we mean by that is that he's employed by the king. Now, the king at this time was King Herod. Now, not the, not the King Herod that, that 
um, did all of when Jesus was born, because Herod is a, a family name. So it was one of his grandsons. And King Herod is a king, and his royal official is employed by him. In other words, this guy would have been part of the Herodian elite. He would have been wealthy. He would have been influential. He would have been powerful. He was an official. He was employed by the king himself. We, we don't know why he was in Copernicum. He might have been there for taxing because it was a central hub for the tax collectors. So he could have been there. It could have been a collecting time, collecting the revenue off the fishermen out of the Sea of Galilee. We don't know. But we do know that he was an important government official. And we also know that he had a little boy. I don't know how old. Maybe, say, two years old. And this little boy has a fever. And as you know, fevers, even today, can be dangerous. We've got to keep them under control. But, but in those days, they were even more dangerous. And, and so throughout human history, for most of human history, children, when they got fevers, would often die because it was so deadly for them. And this little boy has a fever. And it's not coming down. It's, he's just burning up. And his, his breathing has become shallow. Very, very, he's weak. He, in fact, he just lays listlessly. He, he's going in and out of almost a coma. And the father is just, he's, he's distraught. He's absolutely distraught. He's so afraid. My son, am I, my son what am I going to do? And he hears about Jesus. And so he get, he's waiting. He's hearing Jesus is coming back from Jerusalem. And he's, getting, and he's waiting for Jesus. And he's waiting for Jesus. And he, and he believes that Jesus can do this miracle. Jesus can heal his son. And he's waiting anxiously and, and praying. And, 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 you know, oh, Jesus is going to be here. But Jesus doesn't return to his town, doesn't return to Copernicum. Instead, the, the official hears he's gone up into Cana. And, and no one knows when he's going to return. So without hesitation, this royal official gets his entourage and he departs and he goes as fast as he can, leaving the seashore town of Copernicum and he climbs up into the Galilean hills. The 26 kilometres is very steep, it's very rocky, it's a very difficult road, but he's got to find Jesus because he believes the only way his son can get healed is through Jesus. And he finally arrives and he sees Jesus. And this is a royal official, as I said, this man's influential. He's an elite he, when he speaks, people jump. He's not accustomed to begging. He's so powerful. When he issues orders, they jump. But now, but now his son's so ill. He has no power. He has no ability to make this, this right. And he begs. He falls at the feet of Jesus. He says, please, sir, please, come down. Come back with me to Copernicum and, and heal my little boy. I mean, he's at the point of death. Please come with me. I'm begging you, come and heal my son. The response of Jesus, as so often is the case, is surprising and a little bit confusing. You know, what does he say? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. <laughs> Imagine getting that word. See, what Jesus wants people to do is to believe in him. He wants to people to believe that he is revealing to them the Father. He wants people to believe in him. But he knows unless people see the signs, they won't believe. But, you know, signs have a problem. Because when you have to do signs in order to reveal the Father, and as soon as he starts doing signs, people get confused and they become distracted by the signs themselves. Now, as I said last week, a sign points to something. It's not the thing that is of value. A sign, you know, you don't go and stand, you know, if a sign's saying, I don't know, Auckland down there, you don't stand on there, ooh, sign, sign. You see, oh, okay, Auckland's that way. It points to something. It's, it's important. 
And Jesus is saying, listen, I have to do signs or they won't believe. And there's a hint of exasperation in his voice because people so easily get distracted and they begin to focus on what Jesus can do instead of the sign they point to, who he is, who he is. You know, and this is a recurring theme throughout John's gospel. You'll see it when we look at the feeding of the 5,000 and they see the sign and Jesus says, you saw the sign, you loved the sign, you ate the fish and the bread and you missed the point. You missed the point that I'm the bread of life. Instead of saying, oh, that's a sign that points to me, he said, oh, great, thanks for the free lunch. The problem reaches its culmination, of course, in the Gospels with Thomas. Thomas says, look, unless I have a sign, I'm not going to believe. I need to see the nail prints in his hand, the hole in his side, or I not believe. So when Jesus appeals to him, he says, all right, Thomas, here's a sign. And Thomas says, okay, I believe you. And Jesus says, fine, you believe me, but blessed are those that believe because of those who have not seen. There's a frustration in Jesus' voice here. He can do signs, but he's finding that people are getting distracted by the signs because people become so obsessed with the signs that they often miss Jesus. So Jesus says, unless you see signs, you won't believe. And it's, But, you know, it's amazing because his father, God bless him, he says, he's really not interested in a theological discussion right now. And he says, please, I'm just begging you, heal my boy. And what does Jesus do? He says, go. Go, your son lives. Your son will live. Go? Go. Listen to me. Go, your son will live. And so I'm sure there would have been some hesitancy in the father's voice, but he, okay. And he starts down. But as I said, it's 25 kilometres. It's a great distance for those days. Difficult travel. He would have travelled as far as he can and I imagine he would have had to actually have a night resting somewhere because it says the next morning the servants come to him. As he's getting close to Copernicum, he comes and the slaves come rushing to him and, and they say, your, your son, your son, he's well. He's going to be fine. He's recovering. And the royal official would have just been, oh, overwhelmed with joy and he says when did we get when did he get well and his servants would have said yesterday afternoon about one in the afternoon and the official pauses and realizes this is the very time when Jesus said to him your son will live and what's the result we're told that the official and his whole household believed in Jesus believed what well, they already believed that he could heal the sick because of the, the official went to him. What did they believe? They believed in Jesus, which is what Jesus was after all along. They saw the sign, but they were not distracted by it. They allowed the sign to point them to faith in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to believe that he is the Messiah which is what? It means that I believe that he is king. King of the Jews, king of Israel, king of the world. And think about this. Who was this, this man whose son got healed? He was an official. He was a royal official. So who does he work for? King Herod. And who's King Herod the king of? He's the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. So suddenly this man has changed. No longer does he believe in Herod. He now believes in the real king, the true king. He says, the king that I put my faith in is not Herod, but it's Jesus. And I'm not gonna, and I'm gonna, not gonna put my faith in anyone anymore except for Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus. 
And it says, him and his whole household believed. You know, it's interesting, in the Bible, salvation is almost always not an individual thing. Unfortunately, in our modern world, we've made it such an individual thing. But if you read the scripture, it's so often a household thing. The household believes on Christ. And this is the second sign of the Gospel of John. It points to the divine logic of God, this love logic, this eternal word made flesh who became a person in Jesus Christ. You see, to believe in Jesus is to believe that Jesus is a revelation of what God is like. The sign is not the thing. I mean, we know Jesus can do miracles. The sign is, is going, look, right here, right here. He is Jesus. He's the word of life, the word that God has spoken into a sin-sick world to make everybody believe him well. God has sent his word to heal us. And that word is Jesus. Because Jesus is what God has to say. And God has spoken in his son. I like what Bishop Mark Sharona says. God has only one language. He speaks son. It is a very, the very testimony of Jesus that is a spirit of prophecy. Jesus is the main event. The fullness of time is experienced in him, in his very being. He is God's eternal and ultimate word. So the question for us, I believe, is to ask, how do we live in this reality? How do we live in this reality? You know, how do we live with Jesus and his kingdom in our, in our world today? And I think, you know, there's a thing that was around a few years ago that, well, got really commercialised and became a bit of a thing, but it was, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? You know, and I think that's a great way to live our lives. It's a little bit legitimate question. Anytime we face something, what would Jesus do? Now, sometimes we may not know what Jesus would do. We certainly know what Jesus wouldn't do. Because, <laughs> you know, Christ reveals to us the things like love your enemies. To... Uh, you know, that I'm revealing your Father to you, who is kind to evildoers. We recognize that Jesus is a living word with whom, you know, we need to engage. And when we engage with Jesus, we're engaging with the Logos of life, the very life of God. And we, when we believe that Jesus is to believe that he is what God has to say. And when we believe in Jesus like that, our souls will be healed. We'll find life. Because God has looked upon the human race that was sick with sin and said, Behold, here is my word who brings healing. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? Can I have the worship team?